On Sundays, uh, growing up, most Sundays, uh, we had kind of a sacred family tradition. Uh, we would drive out to Pleasant Grove uh, to have lunch with Grandma. And I loved my grandma. I loved Norma. There were so many things about Norma that uh, made life special. But uh, one of the things that I was particularly drawn to was this strong British accent. Having grown up in New Zealand, uh, she spoke the Queen's English. And even after moving back here to the States with, uh, with Granddad after the war, she always carried and had this great affection for the Queen. She would tell stories about the queen. She would open up this commemorative uh, picture book of the coronation of the queen and, and walk through it like it had just happened. And sometimes when I was really young, I would even get confused because grandma, to me, sounded a lot like the queen and she actually looked a lot like the queen. And so I would ask her, grandma, are you the queen? To which she would respond, no. For seven decades, Queen Elizabeth reigned with dignity and and humility through seasons of scandal and selfless duty in an age of, of expressive individualism, discipline in an era of decadence. She was a devoted follower of Jesus. In her final Christmas address this past year, she said, Jesus, whose teachings have been handed down from generation to generation, have been the bedrock of my faith. And in many ways, what we saw in the life and the humility and the character of Queen Elizabeth stands in contrast to what we're going to look at today. So if you want to grab a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We've been walking through this letter. Um, as you're doing that, those of you who are joining us from Elliott Hall, um, we're grateful to be with you as well. Corinth was one of the great cities of the ancient world. It had one of the fastest growing economies in the first century. Uh, lots of money flowing in, and, and because of its thriving port, uh, by sea, east and west, by road, north and south, uh, Corinth was a city that never slept. Uh, once in a speech, there was a Greek philosopher who coined the verb uh, for hedonistic excess. The verb was Corinthizai, right? literally to live like a Corinthian. Uh, something else I learned this week, and uh, some of you might appreciate this, Corinth was a pretty big sports town. Uh, every two years, uh, the, the city of Corinth hosted the Isthmian Games, which were second in popularity around the Roman Empire, only to the Olympic Games in Athens. They love their sports. They love their football teams. And I'll just say it, I had the burnt orange tie locked and loaded for this morning. And I was going to, I may still wear it at the 11 o'clock service, but is it okay for me to mention that? I mean, you just, very little response to that. Okay, moving on. It's kind of a depressing day for Texas football teams. We're just not going to talk about it any more than I already have. Corinth was a wealthy, hard-partying, competitive city. Well, one day the Apostle Paul comes to the city of Corinth and he begins to share this story, this good news about a God who came to them and who, who created them and who loved them. In fact, this God sent his son to, to live a perfect life and to die for them and, and, and to forgive them and and Paul said, so come and receive his love, and receive it they did. For 18 months, Paul shared this message in different people's homes, and, and this little community, this little gathering of Jesus' followers began to grow. But here's the thing. These hard-charging Corinthian party animals who came to faith in Jesus, apparently they just became hard-charging Christian party animals. They believed in Jesus 
but their behaviors and their lifestyle didn't really change. They still looked like everybody else in Corinth. Now, somehow they weren't connecting the dots to what they were learning and celebrating and, and experiencing on Sunday mornings to how they were living their life the rest of the week. Even their worship services were kind of getting out of hand. I mean, some people were getting drunk, coming to communion. I mean, the Corinthian church, they, they, they were a mess. I always feel better as a pastor reading through the, uh, the, the book of 1 Corinthians. Like, we got issues, but not like these issues. So Paul, who after a year and a half, he moved on and he, he went to plan a new church in a new city. Uh, Paul eventually finds out about what's been going on, we're told, from someone in the household of Chloe, someone who wrote him. And I was thinking about what that must have been like. It would almost be like one of you parents who just sent one of your children off to be a freshman in college. Like Jojo has just gone to Ole Miss and uh, you've got a friend who lives in Old Miss in Oxford, and they ran into your son on the Grove, and he was getting a little bit wild. And then they did a little more digging, and they found out that he hasn't been to a single class all semester. And you just got word of this, and you are fuming. Well, imagine pulling out the formal stationery, because this isn't going to be an email. This is not going to be a text. Like, you're going to write a letter, and you put pen to paper, and you're going to tell them how it's going to go from here on out. All right, that's what Paul did. And he didn't hold back. It's like a spiritual father needing to address his children. He's disappointed. He's hurt. And yet in the midst of all that hurt, he writes some of the most profound words. 1 Corinthians 13, these words about love. Now what we have in our passage today, 1 Corinthians 3, um, this is Paul kind of putting on the tough love hat of being a spiritual father. So let's look at this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll start with verse 1. Here's what Paul writes. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And we'll stop there. You're acting like a bunch of spiritual infants, Paul says to the Corinthians. Like you think, you think that you're grown-ups, but you're really just a bunch of spiritual babies. So just to kind of play out this image, babies who act like babies are just the best, right? We're drawn to them and this universal image of cuteness that cuts across cultures and, and draws you in and you find yourself ooing and aahing and you want to hold the baby and play with the baby and maybe make goofy faces to make the baby laugh. Like all of us are drawn to this. A baby who acts like a baby is a gift. A grown-up who acts like a baby is a tragedy. It's like Will Ferrell and his buddy in that movie Step Brothers. Like, you can't take them anywhere. It's arrested development. And maybe it's funny for a moment, but after a while, it's just sad. And Paul says, that's you, Corinthians. You, who by now should be mature, grown up. And somehow you have been stunted in your spiritual growth. And see, when that happens, it's not just that it hurts them or inhibits them, it's that it hurts all the people who have to deal with their infancy. 
Now, I don't like to do this often because, and you got to always be careful with pastors who like break out the Greek language just to kind of prove that they went to seminary. But, but this is one of those moments when I think it is going to be helpful for us. So we're going to break out the, like, the Greek for a little bit. Paul, to this point, has been talking about, in 1 Corinthians uh, 2 in particular, the difference between living by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, and living by the flesh or living according to the patterns of this world. So in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 3, if you have this open, he calls the Christians in Corinth, he calls them sarkinoi. Sarkinoi, it's a word that comes from the word sarks, which means flesh. Now this was a super common word uh, for, for Paul. I think it's translated worldly, depending on the translation you have. But here's where the grammar lesson kicks in. Are you guys, you up for this? Okay, sort of. When a Greek adjective ends in enoi, or enos, it means that something is made out of something, all right? It consists of something. So Paul begins chapter three by saying to the Corinthians, you are made out of flesh, sarkinoi, which in itself is not really that strong of a rebuke, right? we're, We're all made out of flesh. This is what it means to be human. But the trouble with the Corinthians was not just that they were sarkinoi, made of flesh, but then in verse three, he says, you are still sarkikoi, which not only means made of the flesh, but dominated by the flesh, overwhelmed by the flesh, driven by the flesh. You see, for Paul, the flesh, it was more than just a physical thing. It means our human nature apart from God. And the fault that he finds with the Corinthians is not just, is not that they're made of flesh, but it's it's that they've allowed this part of their nature to dominate their lives, even after coming to faith in Jesus and being freed from the bondage of sin. And I'm grateful here to Alistair Begg for this insight. Paul says, when we act this way, even though we've put our trust in Jesus, we become Christians, we got ordained, we got, you know, confirmed, baptized, all that stuff, even though we have been saved from our sins through what Jesus did on the cross, we may be a Christian But while sin no longer reigns, it still remains. Sin may no longer reign over us. Jesus accomplished that victory on the cross, but it still remains, and there's still this battle at work. So what is it about their life, the Corinthians, that made Paul kind of take the gloves off and call them out like this? You're just a, you you guys are still wearing diapers. Well, he tells us in verse 3, this is the evidence of their spiritual infancy. He says, for while there is jealousy and strife, while there is jealousy and quarreling among you, how can you tell if somebody is is dominated, overwhelmed by the flesh and they're not living by the spirit and they're being held back in spiritual infancy? You see jealousy and you see strife. That's the tell. Now, I know that we've got, I think we've got a few parents in the room, parents of young children. Uh, Some of these children are here. Uh, One of the things that a parent might be overheard saying to, let's just say, like an elementary age child, a nine-year-old child who begins to revert back into childish infantile behaviors, like throwing things, temper tantrums, just yelling at the whole world, what might a parent, and this is hypothetical, okay? Like, I would never say this, but what might some parent say to some child, let's say a nine-year-old boy, who's acting this way and just going like off the rails, throwing things, temper tantrums. They might say, quit acting like a baby, right? You're better than this. It's the most insulting thing you can say to a nine-year-old. Like, 
You're not a baby anymore. You're nine. Like, you're better than this. Well, imagine saying that to a 40-year-old. I'd imagine saying that to a church elder. You are acting like a toddler right now. That's what Paul's saying here. You've still got diapers are. Look at how angry, look at how angry you are. Look at how you're fuming at the world and how you respond to difficult people and difficult situations and circumstances. Look at your reactions to an unfair world. You're so explosive. And then you start comparing yourselves to other people out there. You're jealous of, of other people's success. You are acting like a child. Right? What do toddlers do when they don't get their way? What do they, what do, they do so often? They, I mean, they just throw stuff. They, they hurl things. Um, our daughter, Collier Jane, she just turned five, and this has been a challenge for us so far in her five years of life. She's starting to get over the hump, but, but there was a stretch where, like, she would throw, she would launch any and everything. Like, if her sleep-deprived dad got the milks mixed up in the morning, because there's, like, four different kinds of milks in the refrigerator, hello? And if I reach for the wrong, you know, thing of milk and I put almond milk in her sippy cup instead of the cow milk, I mean, she'll take one pull of that thing and she will just like launch it. She'll spit out everything that she has in her mouth and then she'll launch it across the kitchen. It doesn't matter if it hits dad. Right? We don't want our toddlers to act that way, but at least we get it. And we, we assume that there's going to be a developmental process where at some point it will no longer be necessary to throw said objects. But when you see mature 60-year-old grown-ups who every Sunday they sit in the same pew and they come to the same church and they hear the sermon and then they're cut off in traffic on their way home and what do they do? They start throwing things like throwing insults and hand signals and, and, and you know people like this. It's like they're at war with the world, strife, quarreling, jealousy. And I'll tell you, this has just come to life for me over the last few weeks. And it's like every time I'm tempted to think, man, those Corinthians were just crazy, like unhinged, off the rails. They were unglued. I am so glad that Paul is not really talking to me at this particular moment in, you know, the inspired word of God, New Testament. And then I start to see it, like everywhere, the quarreling, the little patterns of jealousy and envy and the pride and the comparison games that, that I allow myself to kind of fall into all the time, the unhealthy ways that I deal with anger, either just kind of stuffing it down or it just comes out and manifests itself in the most, like, inappropriate ways. This is about me. And when we see this quarrelsome, argumentative, troublemaking, always looking for a fight, this is the tell, especially if it's somebody in the church. This is a person who for some reason is spiritually stunted. In the words of John Barclay, he may be a faithful church attender, he may be a church officer, but he is not yet a man of God. So then what do we do? How do we keep growing and not allowing our maturing in Jesus to be stunted or arrested so that we're just a bunch of spiritual infants. Because can we all agree, like, that's not the goal here? We don't want that for our lives and our families and for this church? We'll skip down to verse 16. How do we grow out of spiritual infancy? Here's what Paul says, verse 16. Do you not know, he says, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, you are that temple. How do we grow out of spiritual infancy? Be the temple. Be the temple. Here's what I mean by that. If you know that you are God's temple, that the Spirit of God dwells in you, and when you allow that to sink in, it changes the way that you look at yourself. You no longer feel this need to have to measure up to some image or picture of success. You're no longer obsessed with outdoing others and and comparing yourself to them, which you know this is like chasing the wind, right? Because the moment you're able to outdo somebody that you're comparing your life with, what happens? You meet somebody who has more. So what's the answer? Be the temple. Know that you are a sacred temple in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and resides. What makes a temple sacred? Like what makes a temple a a, a reverent and holy and other and, and valuable place? Is it the structure? Is it the stonework or the architecture? At one point in this passage, Paul says, you are God's building. What is it? What gives that building? What gives that temple its, its sacredness and its value? It's not the temple itself. It's what dwells, what resides in that temple. And when we begin to find our identity in the one who dwells in our little temple, when that happens, we discover a kind of freedom what Tim Keller has called the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And it's not that I begin to degrade myself or devalue myself or disparage myself. That's not true humility. But I discover this blessed self-forgetfulness where what matters most about me is that God's spirit is alive and residing within me. Just imagine with me for a moment living in an entire day in the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Like I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. What gives my life meaning is not me, but the one who dwells within me. Like truly having a full day, morning to evening, where you never once had to think or worry about what other people were thinking about you. No peer pressure. No having to measure up. Or when someone criticizes you, you're not crushed. It doesn't ruin your day. And not because you got on this path of like, well, who does he think he is? I mean, his train wreck of a career, I'm not listening to him. No, you can receive a critical word for what it is, a gift, an opportunity to change. Because your identity, your value is secure. You're just the temple. Imagine living for an entire day where you neither need recognition, but you also don't have to run away from it. Like, I don't have to do things just because they make me look good. I can do things just to, just to do things, right? Because it gives me joy simply because there's joy in it or because it's the right thing to do. I can help people not because it's going to earn me something or I'm going to feel better about myself. There's no more earning, no more performance. You're the temple. When you're not obsessed with, with how you stack up against other people, then you're more free to be responsive to the hurts and the, and the sadness and the brokenness in other people's lives. At the same time, you might even find yourself more willing and freed to speak up when you see something wrong, like to stick up for someone who's being gossiped about because you're not worried about what they're going to think about you after all. You might be less tolerant of, 
of, of vicious gossip in the office or at the PTA or wherever and not just stand by and let it pass like you once did. Or maybe you take a stand against a racially charged joke that you hear or sexual innuendo or the, the belittling of people who are different than you because it's not about you. You're the temple and the Spirit of God dwells and resides in you at every moment. This is the promise. When you give your life to Jesus and the Spirit of God comes to dwell in you, you are now God's temple. You are the place where heaven and earth collide. And when you realize that, it changes everything. And by the way, if you haven't done that, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, you can do that today. You can do that right now and you can become a sacred temple of the Holy Spirit. Be the temple. It changes how you see yourself. But then second, what you, when you find your truest identity in the one who dwells and resides in you, it begins to change how you see others so that you can not only be the temple, but you can see the temple that is another person in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Here's the thing. It's real hard to go about my day just warring with other people when I realize that they are, they are temples that, that the Holy Spirit resides in just as the Holy Spirit resides in me. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, you've got to treat Christians a certain way, but you can just trash anybody who's not a Christian because they're not yet a temple in which the Holy Spirit resides. First of all, who are you to know? But then secondly, they're just temples in training. Like, they're a person made in the image of God, and God wants to dwell in them. Jesus came and made his dwelling with us so that he could make his dwelling within them. And so you might as well go ahead and start treating them like the temple. Quarreling, divisions, strife, anger, jealousy, envy, rage. There's just, there's no room for it. When you begin to see people, especially in here, in the body of Christ, as temples of the living God. So let me close with this. Um, earlier this week, I, I had the most incredible interaction. Um, if you remember the storm, I think it was last Sunday, which knocked down a bunch of trees. We've got this ancient, giant red oak in our backyard, and it doesn't handle these storms very well. So we, um, there was a guy who came to kind of help us clean up some of these branches. His name is Lance. And he was quite a character. Um, I believe he, he uh, served some time in prison, really turned his life around, and he had lots of stories, and he loved to share those stories. After we uh, finished the work on the trees, we're kind of standing around his uh, pickup truck. When Lance asked me, and this is not my favorite question, but he asked me the question, so, like, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he says, oh, man, I almost became a preacher. And I'm thinking, this is going to take a little while. And inside me, there's all this anxiety, and I'm not sure that I have time for this story, and my kids are in the house unsupervised. They're probably throwing things and acting like, you know, spiritual babies, and it's blistering hot outside. I'm getting bit by mosquitoes, and I'm really supposed to be working at that point on my sermon on treating people like temples of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I don't have time for this. So he goes into this story, and he says, back, he says, um, back in the 80s, I kind of got bored with life, and so I started reading the Bible and studying the Bible all the time. And pretty soon, I was asked to be a deacon in my church. 
Now, Lance didn't really look or act like the other deacons. He was telling me about this at this fancy downtown Baptist church that he went to. Uh, he was a crane operator, and he just had, you know, a different background than a lot of the other deacons at this church. And he goes on, and he says, uh, he says one day, and I think, I think it was Dr. Criswell, he said, one day, Dr. Criswell, my preacher, he asked me to teach the biggest Sunday school in the church. And Lance said to him, um, I'm not a preacher like you, Dr. Criswell. And Dr. Criswell said back to him, well, I don't want you to preach like me. I just want you to be yourself. So Lance says he'll do it, and he goes and, and he gets introduced in front of this big Sunday school, and he's welcomed up to teach this Sunday school class. There's a couple hundred people, and they're all dressed in their Sunday best. And he walks up to the podium, and, and here's what he says, and forgive the language here, but it's, it's part of the story, and I promise it's headed somewhere. He says, well, how the hell are you all doing on this fine, you know, insert cuss word Sunday morning? And these 200 Baptists, you know, there's deacons and other kind of people and leaders in the room, and they're all kind of looking at each other, and some of the deacons pretty soon start whispering, and after a moment, Lance says, what's wrong? And eventually, one of the deacons, you know, raises his hand and says, well, sure, sir, um, you should not talk like that in the house of the Lord. And every, of course, everybody in the room starts shaking their heads like, amen to that. And Lance said, all right. Well, tell me this, how many of you in the room here are Dallas Cowboys fans? And, you know, most of the hands in the room went up, and Lance said to them, he said, he said, all right, well, here's the, what I want you to know about me. I'm a 49ers fan, which I'm thinking, Lance, this is not the best way to, like, gain trust with the audience, but he said, I'm a 49ers fan, and again, they're shaking their heads, like, who is this guy? Who made him a deacon? Who allowed him to teach our Sunday school class? Lance keeps going, like, he's getting into it now, and he said, here's the thing, my 49ers are coming to town next weekend, and I want to know, what happens, let's say they blow out your Cowboys, let me ask you a question, and I want you to be really honest about this, how many of you, if the Cowboys get thumped, are going to use language unbecoming of the house of the Lord? Silence. People start sort of looking around, and finally, you know, one man in the back of the room <laughs> raises his hand. And then pretty soon, you've got a bunch of people, hands raised, and there's even a little bit of laughter going through the room. Then Lance says, how many of you wives, how many of you wives, when Danny White throws an interception, have, have seen your grown man husbands huff and puff like little children, and they throw things, and they throw remote controls, and they're just yelling and screaming bad words at the TV. And slowly, some of the women start raising their hands. And then Lance took a moment, and he said, well, here I am, and you can't stand the fact that I use rough language in the church. You can't speak like that in the house of the Lord. And then here's what he said. You want to know what this good book says? You are the house of the Lord. You and you and you are God's temple. So how dare you separate what happens in your own homes when nobody's watching and nobody's listening, you who are temples of the living God. And he walked off the podium. Isn't that a great story? <laughs> like, I am so glad I stuck around to listen to that story. Don't you, do you want that guy to teach your Sunday school sometime, just maybe without the cuss words? Do you not know that you yourselves are temples of the living God? God's spirit dwells in you, and God's temple is sacred. 
And you, together, are that temple. So Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have come and you dwell in us and somehow in the mysterious economy of God, the one dwelling in us, our intimacy and the power that you can unleash in our lives is somehow greater than what Jesus' own disciples experienced in his presence. And I pray, Lord, that this would change the way that we see ourselves and it would change and transform the ways that we love and see and treasure the people in our lives. God, would you continue building this house into your sacred temple? And as we go about our days, maybe even today, would we carry this promise with us? I am a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in me and is making me holy. And would that be the thing that matures and shapes and transforms us more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.